We're becoming a nation of book readers. Now is a time for comfort reading, finding the books that we love and re-immersing ourselves in them. Escapism, no longer a luxury, but a psychic necessity. If the world around us is painfully over-familiar because we're seeing the same patch of sky and the same walls every day, I think the virtue of reading is to transport us into a, a sort of a new world entirely. You're listening to Stories of Our Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, what to read in lockdown. We wander the virtual corridors of the Times, Sunday Times and the TLS for answers. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work. My name's Stig Abel. I'm the editor of the TLS Times Literary Supplement. Stig has picked his top three books to get him and you through lockdown. We'll come to them in just a moment. So I work not that far away from you when we were living in the same building, David, but now, of course, we all work in a, a small part of our homes. And which part of the home are you working from at the moment? Well, I don't have an office and I have three children, one of whom is under two years old. So I am basically hiding out like a criminal in my bedroom. I don't have a desk, so I'm using my wife's makeup table. So if you, if you imagine me, if you will. Uh, not only that, uh, the door is slightly coming off its hinges, so we've kind of got that propped up with a book, uh, because if my baby daughter, Phoebe, hears me, she doesn't understand the fact that I can't come out to play. So I've wedged the door shut, and I'm in the corner of my bedroom on my wife's makeup table. <laughs> and how have you been finding this period? My, my life before lockdown was very much... I commuted in. I was away from half six in the morning till eight or nine at night. I saw my children very briefly in the week and then a lot at the weekends. And now I see my children in the morning. I see them at lunchtime. I see them in the evening. And after we finish talking, I'll do a bit more work. And then I'll walk downstairs and be engulfed by three children who want me to throw water at them or sing songs with them. So although I feel the anxiety and concern that we all do, I am having these moments of joy and moments of of uh, of happiness and so that's the bit I cling to actually when I wake up in the morning. Nice but it doesn't seem to leave you much time for reading. My main reading reading time was an hour or so a day on the commute, bit in the bath, a bit in bed 
And now I read at lunchtime. So I think my, my, my little baby, Phoebe, she goes to sleep for two hours and we make my children look at devices <laughs> in the pr- good parenting tip there. Uh, and I read a book then a bit at lunchtime. So I've still got some time. Stig, how do you manage to read in the bath without getting water all over and all the pages all crinkly? I just don't care. I, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks books should be kept clean and pristine and preserved. My feeling about a book is it needs to be tattered and well-loved. So I, I've historically read a lot of P.G. Woodhouse in the bath, David, and you can see my little P.G. Woodhouse part of the shelf. The books are kind of distended and distorted by all the damp, and that's <laughs> that's to me is a good sign of a book, actually, if it's... If it's been plunged into a bath a couple of times, it's all the better for it. What we thought was it'd be great for you to talk about books which you think and you would recommend to people for the period of the pandemic as they're locked down to, to, to take a look at. You've chosen three. Let's find out about your first one. Before I say that, can I just say a couple of things, David? I want to say to people, A, don't feel you have to read really hard books as projects because we've all got to try and cope through this and setting yourself impossible tasks like reading all of our research sounds good in theory, but it may not fit your busy and fractured lives. So don't worry about that. And the second rule I, I really believe in is if you don't like a book, stop reading it. Uh, I speak to loads of people who sort of dutifully try and finish a book because they started it and I hate it. You know, this is not homework. <laughs> no one's checking. If you don't like a book, stop reading it. So there might just two, two rules to begin with. So anyway, my first choice, I promise you now, if you read this book, there is no chance of you not carrying on to the end of it. It is one of the biggest page turners I've ever read. It's called Papillon by a French guy called Henri Charrière, and it was published in the 1960s. And it's a true-ish, depending on who you believe, story of a French criminal who gets wrongly sentenced for a murder he didn't commit. Chapter 1. The blow was such a stunner that it was 13 years before I could get back onto my feet again. It was not the usual kind of blow either, and they clubbed together to let me have it. This was the 26th of October 1931. At 8 in the morning, they had taken me out of my cell in the conciergerie the cell I had been living in for the past year. I was well shaved and well dressed. I looked as smooth as they come in my made-to-measure suit. Well, the name of the, the character is Papillon, or Papi as he's called, uh, which is French, I believe, for butterfly. He has a giant tattoo of a butterfly on him. And so he's called Papi. But I've got a feeling that it's very made very clear, actually, that it is Henri Charrière. This is a book that is supposed to be about the life of the author. The novel, which he wrote very, very quickly, he, he survived all of this, and then he wrote it in exercise books. And the books is now is actually ordered into the exercise books he wrote it in. The story from the murder, through his various escapades, going into prison in French Guyana, being sentenced to various islands, escaping, having this amazing uh, marine escape on a small boat, and he ends up in, in Venezuela, Venezuela parts... And then he gets recaptured and brought back and there's moments in solitary confinement. And it is the most rip-roaring adventure. This is the, one of the great prison books of all time. It's also about how your mind is stronger than your body, how physical restriction can never fully constrain you. And, you know, he has moments where he's, for a year, he's in solitary confinement, pacing his way around a room the size of 
you know, six feet by eight feet. Even smaller than your bedroom? Even smaller than, than my bedroom. And it, so it's relevant, but I got given it. So the reason I love it so much, when I was about 16, I got given it on Christmas Day. And then I just ignored my family for the whole of Christmas. And I finished <laughs> it sort of breathlessly on, but it's long. It's 600 odd pages, I think. Finished it on Boxing Day. I'd, I'd heartily recommend it to anyone. Did you find yourself, despite the fact that he's obviously not a really nice guy, do you find yourself really identifying with this chap, do you? You do, and it, it, I mean, he's a criminal. He's from the un- French underworld, but he's also, in that sense, got the morality of the underworld. In the course of the in the course of the book, he does kill people, but he tends to kill people who deserve it. He has a sort of very black and white view of the world. We're living through a time of lockdown, and you've chosen a book about a guy who spends quite a lot of time trying to escape and actually escaping. Is it really for the transgressive escapers amongst us, you know, the ones who are tempted to sunbathe in the park when they shouldn't, or <laughs> take their cars up to the Derbyshire Dales? I mean, I think Papillon would, would, do, would fight any institution up to the Derbyshire police, but he could never beat Derbyshire police, I don't think, in, the, in this. I think there's a bit of escapism. It's vast in its expanse. So I think it is partially for the transgressive among us who like a baddie, a good baddie, you know, and arguably in, in all of literature, the characters one most wants to be is the good baddies, not the bad ones, but the ones who, are, who have something glimmering within them. And he and Papillon... It is one of them. It's an escapist book about escaping. I'm Emma Tucker and I'm the editor at The Sunday Times. I'm currently in lockdown in South London. The book that I'd recommend to read in lockdown is Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. I first read this novel when it came out in 1985, and I've read it many times since. It's a funny, humane love story about very imperfect people, but in particular about a man prepared to wait a long time to get what he wants. I chose it as a book to read during the lockdown, firstly because its title has been co-opted by every desperate headline writer recently, during our very own time of coronavirus. Secondly, because this love story is as much a reflection on time as a story about desire, And right now we're all thinking about time, asking ourselves, when will this end? Well, Florentina Arisa, the novel's protagonist, has to wait 53 years, 7 months and 11 days to reach his destiny, which certainly puts our ordeal in perspective. And the novel's all the better for taking place in the colourful, steamy Caribbean, which is off-limits for now and a long way away from here, but it's somewhere to dream of as we mark time, wherever we happen to be while we're reading. Hello, Poppy Damon here. I'm the deputy at the Stories of Our Times podcast. The book that I'd recommend to read in lockdown is In Watermelon Sugar by Richard Brodekin. It's an American postmodern, post-apocalyptic, surreal story written in the 60s at the heart of the counterculture. It's set in the aftermath of a fallen civilization, And the story kind of takes place in a commune, I suppose, a kind of fantastical commune. And it's hopeful, it's playful, it's strange, and a way offers an imagining of another world, which feels timely right now. I'm Laura Pullman, and I'm the New York correspondent at the Sunday Times. I'm currently in lockdown in Brooklyn, New York. The book that I'd recommend reading for this unnerving time is A Honey Bee Heart Has Five Openings by Helen Jukes, which I read a few years ago. It's a beautifully written nature memoir about keeping bees for a year, 
at a time when the author felt rudderless and anxious. It's about friendship, what home means, growing up, and is full of fascinating nuggets about bees and the history and mythology of bees and beekeeping. It's uplifting and inspirational, and it's a testament to the power of tuning into and appreciating the natural world around us, and that feels more important than ever right now. There's a touching love story in there too. Let's look at your second book now, Stig. So my second book is another crime novel. It's The Alienist, which is a book from the 90s by an American writer called Caleb Carr. Now, I have to say, of the three books you chose, this is the only one that was actually found on my shelf, uh, right in the top left-hand corner. Have you read it? I looked, I brought it down, I thought I must have read it because it's been up there so long and its pages are yellowing. And I realised as I, be, I began to look at it that I haven't read it. So this is a real recommendation oh. to read a book I've already got. So you tell me about it. So The Alienist is set in 19th century New York. It's the time of New York corruption. The gangs are just starting to subside. An alienist in the t- time was, was a forensic scientist. So it's a, it's a standard procedural detective novel before the procedures ever existed. And so Theodore Roosevelt, who's the commissioner in New York, instructs a fictional character called Dr. Chrysler to investigate a, a, the murders of, of young boy sex workers. Chapter One. January 8th, 1919. Theodore is in the ground. The words as I write them make as little sense as did the sight of his coffin descending into a patch of sandy soil near Sagamore Hill, the place he loved more than any on earth. As I stood there this afternoon in the cold January wind that blew off Long Island Sound, I thought to myself, of course it's a joke. Of course, he'll burst the lid open, blind us all with that ridiculous grin and split our ears with a high-pitched bark of laughter. Then he'll exclaim that there's work to do, action to get, and we'll all be marshaled to the task of protecting some obscure species of mutant. I think historical fiction appeals to me, A, because of the immersion in another world, but B, that feeling of learning something about a world that is both similar and different, I think really encourages me. There's a, there's a great quote by the historian Trevelyan. He talks about the poetry of history, which is just that feeling that where you're walking, people before you have, have traced the same steps and your, the life is both the same and different to yours. And I find that very much with historical fiction. I think you should read and this, so, David. I'm very tempted to, I say, having discovered it. And because it has a well-worn look without actually having been read, it's most peculiar... Yeah. <laughs> My name is Asya Fuchs, and I am a producer on Stories of Our Times. I live in Bethnal Green in East London, and the book I would recommend to read in lockdown is any book by Alice Munro, really. Uh, Perhaps start with Runaway, but she's a Canadian short story writer. Uh, She's been called the Chekhov of Canada, and her stories are just so quietly devastating. You know, it'll be about, like, a woman who takes a train from one side of Canada to the other, and you'll kind of be like, what the hell happened in this story? But at the same time, your whole world will have somehow shifted. That is why I, I love her stories so much. 
My name is Tony Gallagher and I'm the deputy editor of The Times. I am one of a small band who continues to come to work every day while the majority of staff work from home on lockdown. The book I would recommend to read in lockdown is The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel, the concluding volume of her books about Thomas Cromwell. Why? The Tudor world is brought to life vividly, it's very funny, it feels totally realistic, and yet Mantell's historical understanding is worn very lightly. I don't think you need to have read the preceding two volumes either to enjoy it. One word of warning, it is 875 pages long. As Robbie Millen, the literary editor here, pointed out, if you read 18 pages per night, you'll have finished reading it in 48 days, the precise length of time Cromwell spent in the Tower, visible from my window. I regret to say I'm managing barely five pages a night, so it will take me 175 days, and lockdown will surely be over by then, won't it? Okay, Stig, now we've heard two of your three books, but before we come on to your third book to read in lockdown, it's my turn. I'm hugely excited about this, David. (laughs) Well, I was thinking about a a book that had really quite a big effect on the way in which I looked at things. I read it when I was 24. It's a series of four books, actually. The Raj Quartet by a guy called Paul Scott. It was written over 10 years, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. By the time I got to these books, he'd actually just won a the Booker Prize for a book called Staying On, and then, very unfortunately, almost immediately afterwards, died of cancer. And The Jewel in the Crown, which is the first volume, is the beginning... It, it says it's the story of a rape and the people who were involved in it and the consequences that arose from it and the background against which it took place. And actually, of course, it is about the British in India at the very end of British rule in India uh, and the way in which they interact with the people they rule. And it is an extraordinary series of books. It's 1,800 pages altogether in those... those, Oh, God. But actually, just like you... Over one holiday, I sat down and read the lot. It was a holiday I took with four friends in Portugal. I hardly spoke to them. I read it, you know, after dinner. (laughs) I read it before dinner. I read it on the beach. I read it when I should have been doing all kinds of other stuff. I couldn't stop reading it. And one of the reasons, I thought, was because, firstly, I really wanted to find out what was going to happen, so it really does have that kind of element in it. And second, I just found the characters, these kind of... They were both sometimes awful, but always, never, ever anything less than human. And also they were actors, but also complete subjects of their time and place and of great kind of historical movements, which they imagined that they played a big role in, but actually they hardly did at all. How did the racial politics stand up, David? Because writing about the English and the Raj now would be a very different thing to when that book was written, I would imagine. It is, by and large, a story of... English-British characters, but there are one or two uh, significant Indian characters featuring in it. And I think you're not left in any doubt that the British were limited, sometimes well-intentioned, almost inevitably and always racist in their attitude towards, uh, towards the Indians. But it is, at the end of the day, a very big book about 
British people in India rather than about uh, Indian people in India. You, you can read it without feeling a kind of sense of shame or, uh, yeah. or, or, feeling, or feeling out of place. I mean, funnily enough, his, his, the book that won the Booker Prize, the book that got me into this, was a much smaller book called Staying On. And it's about a, an elderly British couple who are marooned in India in a hill town after the British have left. And yeah. they are both impossible and you feel irritated with them and you also see why they love each other. And the end of that book was the first book that actually made me weep on the tube as I was reading Did the it? end of it. I just couldn't help it. I, I was really, I really felt kind of felt odd. And there was, I remember there was a young woman opposite who looked up and sort of gave me a kind of, you know, a, a smile as if to say, yes, I've had this happen to me as well. But Are you a cry, David? Are you a cry? Um, you? I am hugely sentimental. When I read my kids, uh, Charlotte's Web, I oh. couldn't quite, I couldn't quite get through to the end of it. What about you? It's a great book. Uh, I, I, I have this sort of need, uh, sort of ridiculous uh, desire to suppress emotions. I do, I do choke up. I tell you, the last time I choked up on a book which I'm not sure this is going to reflect well on me, but one of my favourite novels of all time is called Mr. Standfast. And it's a spy thrillery book, and it just talks about the First World War, the heroism and the sacrifice of the people trying to cling on. And there's a bit where one of the characters dies. I won't ruin it. Um, I read that again relatively recently, and, and I quietly choked up. And then my wife came into the room, and I pretended not to. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss I'm Rachel Sylvester and I'm a columnist at The Times I'm currently in lockdown in Hackney in East London and I'm reading Hilary Mantel's new novel The Mirror and the Light it's the final instalment in her trilogy about the rise and fall of Thomas Cromwell and I think it's perfect quarantine reading. There's exquisite writing on every page, wonderful characterisation and astute observation about power and patronage. I love it because it's a reminder that so much about politics is timeless. My name's Tom Whipple and I'm the science editor at The Times. 
I am currently in lockdown in my garden in Reading. You might be able to hear the birds in the background. And my lockdown reading is Until the End of Time by Brian Greene. It's perfect because it is so different from the current world. It is theoretical physics, which is inherently strange and... uh, unworldly. Um, It's also theoretical physics that is understandable, which is an astonishing feat for a book, because so many of these leave leave you scratching your heads. But the main reason I think it's, it's good for a pandemic is because it puts everything in perspective. It is about the myriad ways in which things can go really wrong, rather than just slightly wrong, which is what we're experiencing now. Hi, my name is Carla Patella, and I am the sound editor on the Times and Sunday Times podcast, Stories of Our Times. I am currently in lockdown in London with my husband and my daughter. What I'm actually reading at the moment for some light relief is a book called The Rosy Result by Graeme Simpson. And it's the third in a series about uh, a professor called Don Tillman, who is autistic, but undiagnosed. And basically, it's a very, very funny series of books that just explores Don's uh, search for a relationship. If you haven't read these books already, I'd recommend starting with the first one, which, if I remember correctly, is called The Rosie Project. It's light fun, easy reading on the surface, but actually very meaningful and uh, just a really great read. So enjoy. Okay, so let's carry on to your third novel. Okay, my third novel is uh, a book called Barkskins, which is the latest novel by an American writer called Annie Proulx. She's one of those names very hard to pronounce. I think it's Proulx. This is her most recent book, Big Old Slab of a Thing, I think Annie Proulx is possibly my favourite living American writer. She's a wonderful uh, person to sort of guide you through the hard scrabble world of America. So what's the story here? It's a um, story, it's sort of a saga, a generational saga of people who moved from France to Canada in the 17th century and then it traces their family over hundreds of years. And at some moments, some two-day period takes 100 pages and sometimes 100 years takes a page it's very interesting in how it deals with time but it just it traces the life in the woods of these two families the duquettes and the cells but really then it's just about american life over the last 300 years and that peculiarly american sensation of being in the woods chapter one in twilight they passed bloody Tadoussac, Quebec, and Trois-Rivières, and near dawn moored at a remote riverbank settlement. René Sel, stiff black hair, slanted eyes, yeux bridés. In ancient times, invading Huns had been at his people. Heard someone say, Wobic. Mosquitoes covered their hands and necks like fur. A man with yellow eyebrows pointed them at a rain-dark house. Mud, rain, biting insects, and the odor of willows made the first impression of New France. The second impression was of dark, vast forest, inimical wilderness. The newcomers, standing in the rain, waiting to be called to make their marks in a great ledger, saw the farmers clamped under a sheltering Once again, we have a 
historical uh, novel. So that's obviously a, a, a continuous interest to you, which is to, as you said, to immerse yourself in a in a past time. It's an American novel, uh, and it's the second of your three, which is American. It has French characters in it, so it's the second of your <laughs> novel with French characters. Yeah, I've not done very well there, have I? And it is the and. Does it have gruesome slayings in it? Yeah, no. I, that she, yes, it does. She is she is she is Nabokovian in her ability to dispatch a character in a in a in a parenthesis. So <laughs> she she mean? will. Uh, so she so, so you'll meet someone and then within a bracketed phrase, the person will die immediately. So they say, "Here's so and so," and the next day he was walking along and a tree hit him in the head and he died. And then that's the last you ever hear of them. So. What, the, what she writes so beautifully about is about the sort of life and grim world of the American Midwest. Often this is set in Canada, but it, it's that sort of rural, hard scrabble America where life is very often cheap and bitterly fought over. And I think my the sort of the connection in all of these books is is about it doesn't necessarily have to be worlds of the past, but I think beautifully furnished worlds that are different to mine is ultimately what I'm looking for here. And again, if our horizons have been reduced to our front doors, if the world around us is painfully over-familiar because we're seeing the same patch of sky and the same walls every day, I think the virtue of reading is, is, to, is to transport us into a, a sort of a new world entirely. And if that's done brilliantly, it doesn't have to be in the past. It doesn't have to be France or America, although I've obviously boringly chosen basically the same book over and over again. Um, <laughs> I didn't say boring. I don't think it's boring at all. No. But, but I actually just think it's about, it's about conveying you into another person's skin, you know, the great acts of empathy. And maybe empathy is one thing we can do from our homes. You know, we're all experimenting with things we can do uh, from our homes the same as we've done before actually empathy is something we don't need to to get out of our houses to do now that's the three books and they combine within them the familiar for comfort they combine with escapism and the discovery of other worlds this period has been so strange and so unique and has pushed people back on themselves and the people close to them that i could imagine some really wonderful writing coming out of this period it's an interesting point that actually one of the things I've thought about and we've had some letters on this in, in, in the TLS is if you look at periods of plague, they haven't necessarily produced great literature that responds directly to it. And the examples are kind of obvious, but Chaucer never mentions the Black Death, more or less. Shakespeare lives through severe plagues which close the theatres in the way that our theatres are closed now. There's a bit of plague in Romeo and Juliet. Generally speaking, Shakespeare doesn't write about um, the plague. Maybe the distinction we should draw is that we might get some great writing. I really hope we don't get a lot of writing about what it's like to be locked down, because I'm not sure that would be that interesting. Now, of the three you picked, mm. you're going to have to choose one of those three, because yeah. I'm going to pick it up this evening. So which one should I pick up this evening? Papillon. Papillon. I mean, look, I think you'd be great with any of them, but have, have you read Papillon? Have you read any of You've not read any of these I, two, have you? I, I, I saw the movie. Did you? I've never seen the movie. It's Steve McQueen, isn't it? Yeah. It's any good. Hoffman. Is it good? It's fantastic. Is it? Yeah. Oh, the, I bet the book's better, David. <laughs> okay. I want people listening to this, if they can, to get their hands on Patrick O'Brien's translation of Papillon. 
and try and read it in a weekend. And I guarantee, look, email me, tweet, I'm, I'm on Twitter, tweet at me. I guarantee no one will be disappointed. If you're disappointed, we'll give you the money back for this podcast. <laughs> You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Dig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. You can subscribe to read the TLS or listen to their podcast for free, which is in the same place as ours. You also heard from Tony Gallagher, the deputy editor at the Times, Laura Pullman, the Sunday Times New York correspondent, Rachel Sylvester, a Times columnist, the Times science editor, Tom Whipple, Asia Fuchs, a producer on this show, Poppy Damon, this show's deputy executive producer, our sound mixer, Carla Patella, and Emma Tucker, the editor of the Sunday Times. The producers were Will Rowe and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Leo Hornack. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and more. Also, in these uncertain times, you can keep up to date and well informed on the coronavirus and so much more every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe today to find out more. See you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.